And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Mike Quigley has become a familiar face on national television of late as a member of the House Intel Committee in these fraught times. But I've known him for decades, first as a local aldermanic aide in Chicago, and then as an elected official himself, driving reform issues, uh, as well as issues around the environment and gay rights. I sat down with Quigley last week in Chicago to talk about his life and career, but also where we find ourselves in the midst of this Russia maelstrom. Uh, Congressman Mike Quigley, an old friend. Uh, I've known you through many incarnations in, uh, in politics. Uh, I, I, obviously, your work on the Senate, on the Senate, on the, obviously, your work on the House uh, Intel Committee is of particular interest right now, but uh, I'm interested in you, and we'll get to that stuff. Uh, Glad but, to be here, by the way. Thank you. Good to, good to have you. Um, you, uh, you come from an old line Irish family, right? Came yes. came over around the time of the potato famine. Is that? Uh, as I understand it, uh, during the potato famine, the Quigleys originally went to Canada, and when they got tired of uh, mining iron ore, they crossed the border illegally. <laughs> so I suppose we were some of the original undocumented uh, Americans, and then. Uh, you know, the president is an avid listener of this podcast, so I'm just... Sure. Fair warning. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I don't know if there is a statute of limitations, you, but they'll you maybe may catch up to You may have ice at your doorstep. <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating story. It's an American story. Um, my father was uh, abandoned as a, as a newborn and was in an orphanage, adopted by a dirt-poor couple in Indiana, um, who we got their adoption application. Uh, not the most literate couple, but lovely. The application has a section that said, do you prefer uh, a boy or a girl? And um, as I read the application out loud to my children, they started crying because the answer was, just any child we can love. Oh, isn't that nice? Right. I I mentioned that story when um, my appropriations committee was debating whether or not uh, LGBTQ people should be allowed to adopt um, the notion that we should never deny a child a loving family. Uh, it strikes home from what was probably 1927. And uh, so he was raised on a poor farm in uh, central Indiana, uh, never made it through high school, uh, went into the Korean conflict, was drafted, um, and they taught him radio technology. And they made my father, gave him opportunities that he would never have today, right? He didn't have a high school diploma. And he worked for the phone company for 35 years. In... in uh in Indiana, in here? Indiana, and then we moved to Chicago when I was in second grade. So I grew up in Carroll Stream, which mm -hmm. is hard to imagine uh, how we get yeah, from one place to you, another. You, 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 it's hard to imagine for your constituents too, because they, <laughs> you're a city guy. Although sure. you have suburban areas in your district, your mom was a school teacher. Mom was a school teacher, uh, also uh, born and raised in Indiana. 
and you know they came with we uh we came here in i think 1967 but uh, carol stream is not a bad place to be from in 1976, I got a job with the Salvation Army in a lodge for battered women. It was an old town back, in, you know, at a different time. Old we, town for those of you who don't live in Chicago yeah. is a, it's an area on the sort of near north side of Chicago. It was a lodge for battered women, and we ran a day camp in the summer. So uh, for the summer, um, this is why I got into politics. Um, about half the kids were from the shelter, and about half the kids were from the neighborhood, most of them from Cabrini-Green. So uh, it was an eye-opening experience of what real-world problems were, and I wanted to get into those. At the same time, uh, I was 17, and I had a fake ID, and I yes. snuck up to the Aragon Ballroom and watched Spirit in concert. I saw Steve Goodman at the Earl of Old Time. Oh, yes. Steve I Goodman, saw- a great late... Who, who, who still lives on now because every time the Cubs win a game, they play his song, Go Cubs Go, at uh-huh. Wrigley Field. Well, I named a post office after him mostly because of uh, City of New Orleans and other yeah. classics. And, yeah. um, and I went to Second City, and uh, you know, once you've seen Paris, who wants to go back to the country? Uh, but it's, it's probably the single most important reason I got involved in this business. And you uh, went to Roosevelt University. Undergraduate. In, in Chicago. Right. It wasn't easy for you to afford that uh, mm-hmm. at that time. The, uh, I read a story about the, some assistance that you got from one of your professors who obviously saw some promise in you. There are stories uh, I read later about Frank Untenmeyer, a professor there, uh, helping out students. I was in a position where I had to largely put myself through undergraduate, graduate school, and law school, and a particularly difficult time for a whole lot of reasons. Um, I went to meet him about a paper I was writing, and there was um, a reception had just been completed afterwards, uh, you know, before I went to see him. And so I went over there outside his office, and I picked an apple off the table and went in to see him. Someone called to complain him that I had taken food, and he said, well, maybe he was hungry. Have you been hungry? <laughs> Starving college student, right? And uh, while I sat there, he wrote me a check and said, pay me back when you can. Uh, Bobby Rush went there, too. And uh, years... Congressman, Congressman Bobby Rush. Yeah, yeah, and Bobby Rush said something I wish I had thought of first. He said it so well. Uh Roosevelt was a very special place to go, not just because of the education, but because of the students you were, you were surrounded by. He said, uh, Roosevelt loved me before I loved Roosevelt. Um, it was an amazing experience. and Yeah, we should point out it is, it is a school in downtown Chicago. Uh, it has a, a very progressive uh, tradition. And um, I think Harold Washington may have been the class president at Roosevelt University of former uh, late mayor Harold Washington of Chicago congressman who who was a professor there when I was there uh-huh so uh, so it's a really interesting diverse uh, student body there many like you who uh, some probably a whole bunch of first generation uh, college absolutely students and um, it was really it, when you go back to its history it was formed uh, because of problems with um, 
um, racism in other schools and the fact that the, the public wanted to create, they wanted to create a place where everyone was invited. And it was still to the day. And, and they got me an internship with the US EPA. Uh, region five, and this was of interest to you. You you were, you were interested in this. I saw somewhere you joined the Sierra Club while you were in high school. People say, well, "How important are teachers?" Uh, Gary Williams, freshman biology teacher at Glenbard North High School, gave me a copy of Paul Ehrlich's book, "The Population Bomb." And as corny as it sounds, he said what I say to students all the time now. He said, don't let anyone tell you you can't save the world. You can, and you have a moral responsibility to try. So uh, that's what I wanted to do. My experience with the Salvation Army gave me further reason. And um, so uh, President Reagan is sworn in while I'm an intern, and I am fired because that was his first executive order. And (laughs) And the EPA director at that time, or the one he appointed, was Ann Gorsuch. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's... It's history is repeating itself on many fronts. When they were kind enough later to try to find me a permanent job there, which I accepted, worked for a short term, and when I thought that they had changed our job to circumventing the Clean Air Act, I quit in protest to the horror of my parents who liked that I had a real job, and I took on running political campaigns from that point on. Yeah, so they didn't change the policy when they got news that you had resigned? <laughs> I, I speak to EPA workers to this day uh, in D.C. and in Chicago. Yeah. I say, don't do what I did. Uh, stay here and fight. We need you. We've got enough of a brain drain of natural retirees who came in during Clean Air and Clean Water Act times. So uh, EPA workers, uh, please don't quit and protest stay and do a great job in protest. I don't want to lose the thread of your story, but since we're here, this is a kind of fraught, this is a fraught time for those EPA uh, workers. You were a relentless critic of Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt is gone, but he's replaced by a uh, an energy industry lobbyist. What is the state of the EPA today and environmental enforcement in this country? It's a, a very dangerous time on all fronts. It seems almost like a personal attack by the president, uh, not just on environmental issues and interior issues. It, it seems to me that their goal is to dismantle everything done before, particularly if it was done by President Obama, emission standards, fleet efficiency, uh, coal power, uh, power plants, uh, the regulations. Most recent. Most recent attacks. The EPA is dramatically understaffed. That continues to be the case. The administration even refuses to spend dollars that Congress has uh, allocated. So it's a tough time. There is. Well, what are the impacts of that? I mean, the, the, the administration would argue, well, we're relieving the regulatory burden on, on business. Well, what are the real-life impacts of this suite of of uh, policies that they have rolled back and their the uh, sort of non-enforcement policy of the administration. Yeah, I remind it's easy in a campaign and to talk to the public and say we're rolling back the red tape and the regulations. We're getting rid of the bureaucrats who are in the way of the economy. Um, this will mean uh, dramatically increased morbidity and mortality rates across the country. Uh, I remind those who don't even 
who will say that the, they don't believe in climate change. All right, even if you don't believe in climate change, just remember that the pollution that creates uh, climate change the pre- are precursors in large part to ozone, which um, increases morbidity and mortality for senior citizens, little kids, those with respiratory illnesses. Uh, it has created a real risk for all Americans. For I think actually even in, in the uh, analysis of the uh, rescission of the uh, coal plant, coal-fired plant emission standard, there was an, an acknowledgement that there would be more deaths and more illness associated with the policy. Which has real cost. So there is a, a balance here, and we have to decide what, what's the value of um, human life. It's hard to express that sometimes. I think it's hard to message these issues right now. It's hard to get any bandwidth other than the stuff that's blaring out through tweets and so forth. It's hard to get people to understand what those statistics mean. I remember the Sierra Club years ago was trying to help people understand. So they had a press conference about what ozone alerts mean for seniors and kids, and it got very little play. Then there was a story of a little girl on the northwest side uh, with a respiratory illness, and they showed her watching kids play outside, and she couldn't go. Uh, and that got play. Yeah, so well, I don't I mean, know how that, else that to express I think it. is the, I mean, well, first of all, you look at the statistics in urban areas as opposed to rural areas. And rural areas have their own issues relative to water, uh, you know, water quality and so on. But, uh, you know, you look at the health statistics among young people who have asthma, for example, around urban areas because of the air quality, and you see the real-life consequences uh, of these policies. I want to get back to the thread uh, of your life, and maybe since we're talking about grimy, I know what people's opinion of Chicago politics is, so let me transition to to that. I, as someone who grew up around it, Um, but you... uh, you you know you talk about these issues that are um, sort of glo- national issues, but you very much were a local politician for a long time. You worked for an alderman, Bernie Hansen, on the north side, who was most noted for uh, being the alderman in, uh, who uh, had Wrigley Field in his ward, therefore a great dispenser of tickets to Cubs games, <laughs> which made him a very popular. Uh, politician it, among it other politicians. Helped, actually helped pass a lot of important city council ordinances. Yes, <laughs> that too. Yeah. That too. But just yeah, he was kind of a classic uh, Chicago uh, pal. Talk, talk to me about the image of Chicago politics and how much is warranted and how much isn't. I think that uh, Chicago politics, by and large, uh, is an entirely different ballgame than it was certainly a generation ago, but I think even 10, 20 years. I think it's a the city is being run increasingly in a much more professional way. I think our elections are pretty darn clean. Um, uh, there are those in D.C. when I was seeking to get um, election security dollars spent. Yes. We talk about protecting our elections. I had those who say, so you, you don't want the Russians to steal our votes, but it's okay if uh, people in graveyards do. So I get to your point. Our reputation is still where it was a while ago, and I think that's unwarranted. 
I will say, though, that when I was working for Alderman Bernie Hansen in his service office, the calls that came in were about potholes, street lights, mm-hmm. the quality of schools, uh, whether people felt safe walking home from the train. That's a great lesson in life to appreciate this. Listen, I think local politics is the most vital politics there is because you're dealing with the issues that most closely uh, impact on people's quality of, of, of life. The beauty of that time for me was I was going to the University of Chicago to get my master's in public policy arguably the most theoretical place in the universe. And at the same time, I was trying to get things done at the most practical level. And what it still teaches me today was that the most grandiose policy in the world doesn't matter unless it translates to effective service at the local level. Are the schools functioning? Are kids learning? You know, the, the numbers that we read about in D.C., really don't matter unless we see it working at the street level. So that cooperation across lines of government is extraordinarily important. And I respect the people who serve as aldermen because uh, to them and their right, the, the one person whose electrical service and gas service has been shut off, helping them deal with that issue, making sure that the SROs are open, single room occupancies, dealing with homeless people and all the issues that are that we're struggling with across this country. They're the ones actually getting it done. Let, let me ask you uh, this. You, you've been, your name comes up sometimes relative to people who might, if the opportunity arose, run, run for mayor. Would you consider coming back to Chicago and running for, and, and run for an office like that? You seem animated by these, these local issues. It's hard to, uh, I was a Cook County commissioner for 10 years. Yeah. We, we were viewed as the leaders of the reform movement, but we also passed probably 50 ordinances there to make Cook County government more efficient. And we were constantly arguing about reinventing government, not because we don't like government, but because local government matters so much. You, you got to love the forest preserves. And the fact that the court systems work and the jails work. <laughs> I so, feel like I, I, I take your point, but I feel like you're uh, filibustering so that you can think about what the appropriate answer no, is to this question. No, I, I, I guess I still have one foot in both the universe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love Washington, D.C. The issues are extraordinary. Um, I'm, I travel across the world on intelligence issues that will keep us safe and our allies safe. So I guess I've learned there's a connection between local, state, federal, and international issues that you have to be involved with. And I'm torn is the answer mm-hmm. because I love the fact that I serve on two critical committees, intelligence, appropriations. I want to drive resources back to rebuild the blue line. At the same time, I want to be there when the blue, blue line is Blue line is an L line in Chicago, a, a rapid transit line in Chicago. Out to uh, O'Hare Airport. And I appreciate uh, Mayor Emanuel talking about the newest almost Star Trek way with Elon Musk of how to get people from downtown to uh, airports. In the meantime, I want to get it rebuilt for people in the uh, next 10 years. It's kind of an unfair question because I realize as I ask it, you're running for re-election. Yes. So probably not the most opportune time to ask you whether you might be interested in some other uh, office. I, I always tell people when they, I was a county commissioner, they said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm not wasting my time now. 
So no matter what this fashions for me in the future, whether it's hopefully to be a chairman of a committee perhaps or to run for some other office, it affords me the opportunity to, to speak uh, to, the, to the whole country on national TV, but also to accomplish things at the local level. Um, you, you mentioned your 10 years on the Cook County Board. Uh, there were two issues. You were uh, a leader of reform there, but there were two issues that uh, you were deeply associated with. One was the environmental issue, which you've uh, spoken to. The other were, was, uh, were gay, gay rights issues, and, and you were really a leader on those. Part of it, your, your district encompassed a large uh, uh active gay population, but there's obviously more to it. What, why were you so motivated by these issues? I, I think growing up in Carroll Stream, uh, I don't know if I met someone who was um, out, right? LGBT community person who was out. It was a different world and a different time. Uh, I moved to Chicago and I'm working for Alderman Hansen from 1982 on, living in the community. Yeah, I guess the first thing is uh, you become friends, um, and it's it's about understanding each other, acceptance, friendship, and then something stronger than that. And it's a love with the community of people who were very, very kind to me when I first came to Chicago. And when the AIDS crisis hit, I, I lost a lot of friends. So when it came to defending the community, it was very hard to watch those who would attack my friends, who I felt like were my family, and to this day, my family. So uh, it just seemed like a natural extension of loyalties within friends and family to provide uh, support and laws that protect equality for everyone in our country. But all that begins, as we talked about, on the local level. You can't think about it abstractly and be effective. you got to think about this um, with folks that you care about. I think that's why the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell mattered. It wasn't an abstract issue anymore. You had senators stand up and talk about the fact that they knew people who had fought and died or who were critically injured defending our country, and don't they deserve the same rights as anyone? So I guess that was the motivation, uh, other were you than there just when, supporting when, the underdog. When the president signed that, uh, Bill, were you at that event? The repeal of Don't Ask? Yeah. Don't, yeah. And we went out to the Congressional Cemetery mm -hmm. and laid uh, flowers at the grave of an American soldier who received medals uh, for his bravery in uh, Vietnam. It was later kicked out um, because he was gay. That was one of the most moving events that I attended when I was in the White House. Uh, I remember Admiral Mullen, who started off as someone who was skeptical about making this change, worried about disruption in the force and so on, and and came, and, and and he really became one of its strongest advocates, and uh, in, in a powerful and moving way. But uh, justice comes around in an evolution, and it's people understanding the situation more thoroughly. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, fun it's to watch. beautiful to see. I remember him. You you remember him saying, "I can't, uh, you know, I can't ask someone to lie uh, to serve their country, lie about who they are to serve their country." And he was. Um, it, it, that was. A, it was a moving 
uh, a moving time. So you had the opportunity to go to Congress. Um, when you uh, when you got there, um, what what did you learn that you didn't know? I got there in a different way. As you know, I won a special election. Yes. I can remember uh, Grant Park. For Rahm Emanuel's seat. Sure. I remember uh, November of 2008 standing next to the stage when the president-to-be walked out with his family and promised them that puppy. Um, <laughs> and my wife said, so what are you going to do? There's a race with 23 people. I was fortunate to win the special election. And to get to your question... Uh, you get sworn in by yourself. They literally, the next day they vote after the general, you go to Washington, D.C., they take a vote, they stop. Nancy Pelosi swore me in, and then you look up and you go, what the heck is House Resolution 2342? So unlike most of the who get elected the first time, they go to Harvard and they get a class on this and they get accustomed to it. You're, You're thrown into it right away. That's part of it. I think the thing that struck me first that I had to learn is maybe a lesson for today. Congressman Mark Kirk Mm -hmm. sat down next to me after I was sworn in, and he said, most of the time, anything that gets done here gets done in the middle, which was, I I think, very true for a lot of our legislation. Um, I think a lot of us would have wanted to go farther when we passed the health care law, for example. But it was an amazing leap forward for health care for Americans when we got that done. It's interesting you raised that because, I, you know, obviously I was, I was there and I was part of that effort on the, uh, in the White House. And it, there was great consternation, not just among members of the House, but among uh, many Democrats on the left, that there was no public option in the health care exchanges and some who felt that the bill shouldn't be passed unless there was there were uh, there was uh, a public option and I supported a public option uh, you know I frankly think single payer is something that should be looked at uh, because we have a very inefficient health care system and uh, we still have huge gaps in our health care system but I, put, I run into people every single day who've been helped by the Affordable Care Act, some people who have tears in their eyes because their lives have been saved because they got health care and wouldn't have had it uh, otherwise. And I think to myself, how irresponsible would it have been to say we couldn't get everything we wanted so we didn't accept progress that could have saved the lives of, of millions of Americans? It's an issue that's reflective of where we are as a country. Uh, Then and now, occasionally, we are picketed by groups from both extremes, both sides. Extreme in the sense that they're extremely different from each other, the farthest left and the farthest right. Um, And I think they, I think it's reflective of the polarization that exists in the country and the fact that we are perhaps not listening to each other as much. I am at meetings in which my well, uh, there are a few well-meaning folks who'll say, "Get this done, but don't you compromise." And I feel like saying, "Which one do you want?" Funding our government isn't easy. We we don't have control of either house. Clearly, not the White House. So I don't want to be a government in exile. Uh, I want to still try to get things done on the appropriate process, driving resources back to my district, my city, and my state. It's sometimes hard to do because you can be criticized because you're working with Republicans. 
they can they there are those who would you know if you work with Republicans you're working with the president and he is so uh, hated in parts of my district that that's tough to do so my message is uh, I'm doing what I have to do to push back on Trump policies but in the meantime let me please try to get something done for the country and for my district you uh, founded something called the Congressional Transparency Caucus. Were there any other members when you when you convened that caucus? Well, we could meet in uh, really small rooms. <laughs> Unfortunately, we probably still can. It is a mystery to me because I think if there's one thing we could accomplish on a bipartisan basis is to push back on the view that we've lost the American public's trust. Right? I think coming from Chicago and Illinois, sure, I know that two of the last four people who sat in my seat and sat in the governor's chair are in jail or went Dan to Dan Rostenkowski and Rod Blagojevich. Sure. Um, I was on Colbert when I got to D.C. the first time, and he said, have you picked out your prison yet? <laughs> uh, you know, I hear corruption jokes from on the floor from guys from New Jersey and New Orleans. So I think, okay, we got an issue here. So I think it's important for us to at least try to show the American public that we can be transparent and accountable. Yeah, it seems more important right now because you you do have a pervasive sense of uh, corruption in Washington, not just you know Congress, but at the level of the White House, the cabinet agencies, but even the courts. And the, yeah, but the uh, you've had two members just in the last couple of weeks indicted uh, one for insider trading another for using campaign funds for uh, personal use um, it doesn't feel like we're moving in the right direction I, I ask you this as the founder of the transparency caucus uh, I don't think we are I think there's more work we can accomplish uh, on transparency I think we can do it on a legislative basis I sponsored the COFEFE which was sort of a yes. snarky acronym to but it's become much more relevant. The attempt An acronym based on the president's weird errant tweet. Well, the, the original law was an attempt to protect official records from the White House post-Watergate. The White House, was well, they're the ones that said that his, the president's tweets were his official record, and they were deleting these tweets. So I think it's perfectly fair. Oh, if that's the case, then we got to protect that. So it, the, all the bill said was that the the tweets become part of that record you can't delete. But I, I, I do want to touch on, I think it's across the board. I, um, I, my subcommittee on appropriation funds the Supreme Court. And when I met with the justices and talked about the needs they have to fund the court, I said, I, I believe you, should, you guys should be on TV too, right? Uh, I think about 200 people can watch the Supreme Court in action. And people are paid $50 an hour to save spots in line, which isn't exactly a democratic process. And given that five justices can uh, is change. That, is, that, is that all it costs, $50? <laughs> well, that's you just, know what it costs to get a Hamilton ticket? <laughs> well, uh, the, the problem is that you can't watch the, the arguments before the Supreme Court. I think it would be great to be able to watch from a historical point of view the arguments of Brown versus Board of Education and Bush versus Gore. 
they over they changed the in my mind the outcome of a presidential election and and their reaction was it doesn't look good the democratic process doesn't always look good and my response was it was the anniversary of the release of Mr. Smith goes to Washington when that was released the senate didn't want it to go out because they thought it made us look too bad at great the, great flick by the way well especially today and in Berlin and Moscow, they screamed the movie and decided not to release it or let it be seen because it made us look too good. Democracy is often ugly. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But let the American public watch so at least they don't think they're being, um, that things are being hidden from them. So let's, let's talk about issues in our democracy. You were appointed in 2014 to the uh, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, so you've had a ringside seat for a lot of what we've seen. Um, when, when did you become aware of concerns about Russia and their interference in the, in the election? We started getting briefed about concerns of uh, election interference during 2016. Um, it's a fascinating look back at uh, in in discussing these issues with members of the Obama administration about how they reacted to this and how people judged that reaction and what was taking place live i don't think we fully grasp exactly what was taking place and the severity um but i do remember someone saying well, there are 9,000 entities that run a federal election. They can't hack them all. I didn't think they ever, the Russians ever intended to hack them all. I think the Kremlin playbook is simply to attack liberal democratic institutions and it's attack their integrity. I thought the Russian attempt was to sow discord and to attack the integrity of our election progress. And they succeeded. And um, as 2016 moved along, were you continually updated on, on these concerns? We were. Um, and it was happening at the same time that what we knew was happening publicly. And you know, again, what Director Comey was saying about other aspects of this investigation. What we later learned was... Well, well let me just ask you, when, yeah. when the WikiLeaks... Uh, uh, release happened um, did you did you say to yourself or did someone say to you this is the Russians I felt that this was most likely possibility back then based on what you had heard in committee well, well, based on what I'd heard in a variety of sources mm -hmm. um, it was a painful slow motion train wreck and we had incomplete information, and it was uh, hard to understand exactly how to react because we were we were modeling some of our response in terms of what the White House was doing. And clearly, do you think the, the White time, House was not aggressive enough in blowing the whistle on this? I think looking back, it's easy with hindsight to say that, but I think. The White House was very aware of the fact that they didn't want to be seen as tipping 
the election, yeah. saying something that people would be viewed as a partisan reaction to this, and uh, I think they were. I think, despite the fact, well, not that just they, they, but uh, apparently, uh, from reports, Senator McConnell was dead set against sure. making any big public announcement about this because he felt it would be uh, it would be detrimental to Republic to the Republican. Uh, candidate to Republican candidates generally. Well, some information was going, uh, as, as all intel goes, there's some that only goes to the president, there's some that only goes to the president in the Gang of Eight, and then there's more information that goes Gang to of Eight the, being the, the leaders of the House and Senate and the leaders of the, of the relevant committee. Right. Um, so we weren't getting all that information at that time as members of the mm-hmm. committee. But I think they were listening to the president of the United States say... This is all rigged. I think at that you're talking about the candidate that, for president at that time. Candidate Trump was saying this is all rigged, and I think that probably heightened the sensitivities of White House personnel in the in the administration and their desire to avoid being seen as uh, influence. Since we are looking back, uh, do you think also there was a supposition that? Uh, that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and therefore, um, you know that 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 there was that it was unnecessary. Or, I mean, I don't want to. So I don't. I really don't want to uh, assign political motives to uh, the White House as to whether to release or not release. I, I mean, I've actually spoken to the President Obama about it, and he had concerns about uh, about. Uh, about this issue of not putting his finger on the scale in a way that would suggest the White House was playing politics in the election. But given everything we know, um, should the American people have known more about it than what was released on October 7th by the leaders of the uh, intelligence community? Uh, Sooner and more. Uh, I think the Intel Committee members probably didn't get enough. I think we should have gotten all of that as soon as possible. Mike Morell, the former acting director of the CIA, said this was the political equivalent of 9-11. Now, if you put it in that context, and I think he was right, um, all of this information should have gone not just to the president but to the the Gang of Eight, but the Intel Committee, and then some manner to Congress as a whole we so value the democratic process that the last time it was called into question after the Bush-Gore election um, and hanging chads, right, uh, going to the Supreme Court, we spent $3.5 billion buying new election equipment. Here, right, it is still- You introduced a bill to uh, help uh, fund uh, a- uh a security surge essentially among right. state election authorities before this uh, midterm election and wow. uh, you were stymied in the house we got i was able to uh, get 100 380 million dollars so as my predecessor's phrase would be the decimal point was in the wrong spot um but that was for 2018 in my attempt to do it for 2019. I for, see, 2019 is what Yeah, so we got to. some money, in, mm-hmm. but it's it's clearly a one-tenth of what we probably need. We were stymied on partisan lines, and for the life of me, it makes no sense. What I would tell my Republican friends, 
this just as easily could have been an attack, as we've seen recently, on Republicans as Democrat. You could easily imagine the Russians favoring a Democratic candidate over a Republican candidate if, if the one was very hawkish, for example, or antagonistic toward the Russians. But it, the bottom line is they hacked into it somewhere. The fact that we don't know exactly is concerning. Somewhere between 20 and 40 states' Board of Elections databases. They got right up to the machines. And our machines, 13 states have election equipment that doesn't even have a paper trail. So we wanted to find out what the Russians did. You couldn't prove it. There are over 40 states whose equipment is so old that anti-hacking modern software won't work on it. So uh, while DNI Coates yeah, is saying no, that the lights are blinking saved red. by our archaic system. Yeah, well, while DNI Coates is saying the lights are blinking, blinking red and there's a real threat here, the president says this is a witch hunt and a hoax, and this is creating a real problem for our country. We're not ready. Well, even as we speak in this week, uh, this, there was a bipartisan uh, bill in the Senate to, uh, that, to deal with the threat, the security threat uh, at the states to the voting system, and it was shelved uh, apparently at the request of the White House. Why? I think it's, in their minds, acknowledges that it's not a witch hunt and it's not a hoax. The president has never clearly Meaning said... Meaning the Mueller probe. The Mueller probe, uh, and a larger... But in the end, I think the White House feels that that would be a weakening, an acknowledgement that they were wrong all along. The president has never clearly said that this was the Russians who did this. He can't bring himself to do this, uh, especially after Helsinki. So it makes it tough. We hear resistance from states who say the same thing. They go, well, this is a witch hunt and a hoax. Why do we need this money? And literally are saying to the feds, we don't want help. We don't want the we don't want the government meddling in our elections. So apparently, it's okay if if the, the Russian government do. meddles in their elections. You you uh, your committee did not exactly uh, paint a portrait of harmonious problem solving when it comes uh, to this issue. Uh, Devin Nunes, the chairman, essentially called the process to a halt. But you had months of uh, testimony, um, and what conclusions did you draw from that? And what, 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 how, how do you expect this to unfold from here? Um, I agree with the intelligence community's assessment from January of 2017. The Russians acted in a manner to help one candidate, candidate Trump, and to hurt another, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, and they had cooperation. Um, they weaponized social media, and they continue to weaponize Cooperation from who? Uh, I think Trump associates. At least 12 Trump associates were communicating with the Russians. You know, I can't talk about everything we learned and what we saw and who we met, but there are no coincidences in everything that we read and see about this. And everything is tied together. So based on what you saw, you think that these were not innocent these were not innocent um, meetings. These were not innocent conversations. In April of 16, George Papadopoulos meets with Russians who tell them 
who tell Papadopoulos what they have. They have incriminating emails. Did he meet with Russians, or did he hear that from a third party? I thought he heard it from a third well, party. Well, it's, it's, if there's anything that's once removed, it's still with the Russians. The Russians in the Kremlin playbook is often an indirect attack. The Russians didn't release the emails on, um, on a Russian mm-hmm. uh, site. They, they chose mm-hmm. their intermediaries, and that's who they often use. So uh, then there's the Trump Tower meeting where Trump Jr. says, if that's what we, it is, we love it. Now, let me ask you something. I time. don't, you know, I, I know collusion it, is not a legal term. It's conspiracy. But, but um, you know, isn't that evidence of, of a collusion or an attempt to collude, the fact that he took that meeting? The president says every campaign... Any campaign would do that. I don't know of any campaign that would do that. I don't know any campaign that has met with the Russians. I can think of a few of my colleagues that maybe would do that, uh, given their support of the president and the issue with the Russians. But um, now your colleagues, now your colleagues would say uh, the the firm that was doing the opposition research, uh, hiring a. A, a former intelligence intelligence agent to to investigate Trump's dealings in Russia uh, was uh, tantamount to the same thing. Yeah, they hire an opposition research firm, and they're allowed to do that work. It's quite a different thing when the president's son says. We love it. We hope it's timed right to use for the election. And he's told that bit- it's coming from. From the, the, the Russian government. And, and he's bitterly disappointed that it's not good enough. Days later, the first batch of emails are released through WikiLeaks coming from the Russians. Um, so there are no coincidences. There are dozens of other issues. Why don't we know more beyond this? I think there's a lot more we can't talk about when it becomes public because they tank the investigation and they shut it down prematurely. Remember, only Steve Bannon received a subpoena. And even then, Chairman Nunez and others on the Republican side refused to press him on questions. They allowed the White House to inflict a gag order on members of their administration. They didn't have to talk about questions that they simply didn't want to answer. Uh, well, let me ask you on this. the other actions. The, the chairman worked hand in glove with the White House to, to stymie the investigation. Well, one of the thing, one of the subpoenas that you guys were uh, suggesting was for Deutsche Bank, uh, which has financed uh, in later years a lot of the Trump organization projects because apparently there were other, there weren't that many lending institutions that were eager uh, to do that. Deutsche Bank has been identified as a, a conduit for. Russian money laundering. Do you think this is going to become a factor in the Mueller investigation? And is this part of what has the president so apparently freaked out about it? I think the president uh, reacts strongly at critical times. So it's hard to know exactly. Uh, I don't know how uh, the Mueller investigation is proceeding. We are on separate tracks, obviously. But apparently at critical times, and one of them was when it became obvious he was looking into the president's finances, 
the president reacts most dramatically. Deutsche Bank uh, is fined over $600 million for work helping the Russians launder money illegally. The president is getting the majority of his... uh, Citizen Trump is getting his finances through Deutsche Bank. It's hard to imagine that there's so many of these coincidences. So many of them meet in the same financial, I guess you'd say, cesspools of money laundering. Steve Bannon in in the now infamous book says, it's all about money laundering. Uh, It's funny to quote Steve Bannon, but I think he's right. I don't know. You're talking about fire and fury. Yeah, I don't know if what Mr. Moeller is doing relating to money laundering, we never touch, scratch the surface. I'm very well of the well of the issues. I don't know what uh, the Mueller investigation is doing. I don't know if they're just focusing on conspiracy, obstruction, and the issue that came out this week with Mr. Cohen. Uh, Cohen was before your uh, committee, and now there's a question as to whether he was truthful uh, with your committee. Do you, do you believe he was, and should he be brought back? I think that Mr. Cohen, uh, Trump Jr., uh, and others need to come back in light of new documents, new revelations, new issues that have become uh, aware to the public. They should come back under subpoena uh, and be forced to answer questions. I think they are, well, many of them ref- refused to answer the questions because they just didn't feel like they had to. Um, and that made it very, very difficult. And I think they understood that there's two things at play here. Prior to many of these interviews, the president pardoned the Arizona sheriff. I think Arpaio, yes. Yeah, I think he was sending a message. And when he constantly talks about that, he's helping to obstruct the investigation. I think he's messaging publicly to Manafort. Don't worry, I've got your back. Um, I think he's many- pretty complimentary of him this week. Called him a brave man after he was sure. convicted of it, uh, of uh, bank fraud and tax it's, evasion. It's almost like a scene from Goodfellas or The Godfather, where the most important trait a person can have is that they don't flip on you. Uh, never mind truth and justice and finding out what took place. I would ask the American public to look at that and think about how the president has handled this investigation, what it means, why would you believe him when that is the most important area of concern, that which protects him. He also took off after Jeff Sessions again this week in a more in, a, in an ever more personal way, suggesting that he had betrayed the president by recusing himself in the Russia uh, probe. And uh, what was kind of shocking was that Lindsey Graham, who is in line to become the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said, you know what, maybe after the election he he should replace uh, Sessions. Uh, There's also been talk that he shouldn't pardon anyone before uh, the election. What do you think is going to happen after the midterm election? Um, Before or after the election, my concern is that we we face the constitutional crisis, uh, that the president will use the pardon, uh, that he will fire the special prosecutor, that he will do anything in his... This is a president who did whatever he, he felt he had to to get power throughout his whole life. Why would anyone imagine he would do anything, that he wouldn't do anything just to maintain it? Now, you talked about people's testimony, and we don't 
generally talk about what people have said in our hearings. But Adam Schiff, the ranking dem on the committee, said, if people don't answer our questions, that's the exception. Under Mr. Schiff's question, Mr. Sessions refused to answer whether the president ever asked him to do anything to obstruct the investigation. Well, there's reason to bring him back. How this plays out, I think, in large part depends on what happens in November, which is very hard to predict. Um, I'm concerned that what the president will see if the Democrats take control of the House is additional pressure. The fact that the investigation, the chairman would no longer be uh, Mr. Nunez on the House side, it would be Adam Schiff. And the chairman of Judiciary Committee would be Mr. Nadler. And oversight would be Mr. Cummings. And there would be subpoenas forthcoming in his mind. So as we so said what are you before, saying that you think that if if there's a bad result for him he in November that and that he and that you'll see a series of actions that follow like uh, as you say firing well you say fire the special prosecutor firing sessions would be a backdoor way to control the investigation I think it'd still have to fire someone would have to fire Rosenstein right mm-hmm. uh, but the public understands that but if, if you a fire Rosenstein, General, fire Rosenstein is, is relieved of his responsibility for that investigation if there's a new attorney general he's only in charge of it because Sessions is yeah. recused you have a new attorney general right they then take control uh, of the investigation and you think pardons may follow if there's a bad there's a, result there's a reason the president and Giuliani have talked about pardons, and I think they're waking people up to the fact, well, we have this absolute right. Uh, so it concerns me that the news continues to be bad on this front. I think the president had one of the worst hours of any presidency in our lifetime this week. When that happens, he tends to react harshly. We hear reports of him wanting to fire uh, Moeller and his aides pushing back, wanting to grant pardons and his aides pushing back. Who knows what's happening behind the scenes at the White House? But uh, a bad result in November, other indictments in the meantime. Mm-hmm. You know, what keeps me up at night is that how will we handle a constitutional crisis? Um, a lot of your colleagues, uh, th- there's a big debate within the Democratic Party about whether to talk about impeachment uh, before the election. Uh, where do you fall on that? Republicans seem to be really eager to talk about it uh, and I think, think that think it's it going to rally their base. Sure. Um, I think I've tried to be consistent, and I told my— How, how are you doing with that? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. I tried to be consistent, but talking to my Democratic colleagues, there were those who wanted to talk about impe- They filed impeachment months ago. Um, I would say to them— even if that's your strategy, why wouldn't you wait till the investigation is complete? You may, if you think, you may get one shot at this. And for example, you wouldn't have had any information about Cohen if you did this months ago. I just think it's wrong. To, and I, as, Just as I tell the folks on the far right who shut down the House investigation, that was wrong. So I think the fair and consistent message is impeachment isn't to be talked about or yeah. considered until Mueller completes his work. Yeah. And then let's see what the report says. What do you think the impact uh, generally, we talked about democracy, of all of this on people's faith in democratic institutions? 
I think the worldwide picture is to understand it that the liberal democratic order created after the Second World War is under attack by its primary architect, that the world doesn't see um, America first as the people supporting the president do. They see it as a selfish, isolationist policy. When my constituents say, well, when we are separating families at the border, that's not who we are. My message is, I think, to the rest of the world, that's who we are right now. But what about to Americans themselves? Sure. We seem so polarized. And, you know, the strategy of the president seems pretty clear, which is to send a consistent and vehement message that this whole matter is is partisan in nature. Yesterday he said, you know, uh, that uh, Sessions didn't go in and clear out uh, the, this, this Democrat-infested Justice Department. Um, and, you know, the, uh, in every instance, the, the message is the same, which is all this is a hoax. All of this is a witch hunt. None of it is, is uh, it's all motivated by uh, bipartisanship. And there are, there is a, not, not an insubstantial core of his supporters who fundamentally believe that. And they're being told that by his amen corner and, at, you know, at nights on Fox News, uh, and through social media, maybe through social media encouraged by the Russians in some instances. When I'm on um, efforts to speak a national audience, my friends say, why hey, you're you? speaking to a national audience, brother. Well, but I'm talking about no, I general. understand. Go ahead. Um, uh, people say, you're so calm. Why aren't you talking indictment impeachment? And I say, I'm not speaking to the base. And I'm not speaking to the president's base because they're probably not listening. I'm trying to talk to the public who hasn't made up their mind or the 100 million who stayed home. It is a constant message uh, from a worldwide and a national and a local basis that we're stronger together than we are divided and that isolationism doesn't work and polarization doesn't work in our own country. So how do you push back? I encourage people to try to understand the other side. I tell high school and college students, uh, read To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, take up an Atticus Finch school of domestic and foreign policy, try to walk around in the other person's skin. And a lot of that has to do with how we're getting our news, as you alluded to. There, there are those who only listen to one side of this. Uh, growing up, we read print, and a majority of our print publications had at least something in there that we disagreed with. If all the news you're getting is from a single source of social media or on your iPhone, it knows what you like. It's going to continually feed that um, that understanding. And it's important for us now more than ever to get past that. After Charlottesville, I had someone come up to me and say, you're on that intel committee. You're just relitigating the election. And I said, I should have been calmer. I said, perhaps, but you, know, you guys seem to be relitigating the Civil War well, perhaps it's time for us to remind ourselves of what Lincoln said at the second inaugural. Right? He talked of the significance of what was taking place in no small manner. But then he, he paraphrased the scriptures. He spoke to us in a manner in which we were accustomed to, to appeal to our better angel, or angels of our nature, that we should move forward with malice toward none. I think we're having a hard time doing that, and we have to try. Uh, speaking of, 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 of malice and 
struggles and so on. Do you think Nancy Pelosi should be retained as uh, leader in uh, after this election? You know, I worked with her closely. I, I will tell you that I don't think we would have gotten half of what we got done without her. She's a masterful legislative leader, but she has become also a, a very toxic political symbol after 15 years of attacks. Um, and how many billions of dollars of attacks, right? But, you know, some of your colleagues and a lot of the candidates who are running have said they won't, they wouldn't support her, and the Republicans are trying to make her the fulcrum of their attacks. Uh, where do you stand on all of this? The first thing I would do if I was a freshman coming in was to change the, our system of committee leadership. We just had Mr. Nadler become the chairman of judiciary after a 25-year wait. Republicans have term limits, and they turn that cycle over and gives other people a chance to do it. But they don't have the uh, term limits for the speaker. No, they don't have term limits for the speaker. There's, they th- they force their speakers out. <laughs> yes, they, they enforce Repo- term limits, yes. They have, they have, right, they have more members than any time since Hoover, and they shut down the government and kick out their speaker. Uh, I told uh, Nancy that I would wait until after November, I will say this. Uh, she's been very fair to me. She comes from my two committees, so mm-hmm. she and I have had thoughtful discussions about policy. And I find myself in an odd place, uh, given how so many people seem to feel, of defending her. Uh, this is hurting uh, um, a lot of cats at a difficult yeah, time. Yeah, it's a, a terribly. And, whichever party, sure. <laughs> being the leader in the House is not a... Not a uh, not an easy it, task. It's unbelievably difficult to find consensus among small groups. Never mind a couple hundred Democrats. You're on the you, you're on the uh, congressional hockey yeah. uh, team. I guess that's a bipartisan thing. It is. I would say there aren't nearly as many um, hockey players in Congress as there are golfers and baseball players. But, yeah. Uh, um, it's still. Uh, Tomorrow, I'll be playing hockey at 6.30 in the morning in Chicago. And after a stressful week of uh, dealing with the issues of the world, there's nothing like uh, still getting out there and playing with folks who are probably too old to do so. You, uh, uh, you're wearing your Cubs hat here. Uh, and I have to ask you, because I know you got your start uh, or an early start as a community organizer, fighting lights at Wrigley yeah. Field. I am aware there are lights now. By yes, way. and and how you think? Do you have you eased up on that issue? Do you feel better about it now? I was just there last night, so I think people need to understand something. Dallas Green, God rest him, he was a, yes. a great general manager. He came from Philadelphia. His original plan was to put in artificial turf and have seventy night games, and the. We forced them to push back on that, and they transitioned. We also got a better deal for Cub fans and the neighborhood. <laughs> we got parking programs, right, a permit parking, more, more trains and buses, remote parking, more security issues. So I, I But you're happy, with an, you're happy that there are some night games. I'm, I'm still the purest. I'm happy that the ballpark's going to be there another 100 years. And I understand that development that goes with it keeps yeah, my yeah. favorite ballpark and one of my favorite places in the universe there. I'm still the purest. What did Ernie say? He played all his years under God's own light. Let's play two today. All right. Well, we, uh, I, I, I commend you for consistency. 
<laughs> Go Cubs. Go Cubs. All right. Mike Quigley, so good to be with you. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.